With that, we're going to get into our study of Deuteronomy. We've been working our way through the book of Deuteronomy. We've been studying for several months now, and we've made our way to chapter 12. So find your way to Deuteronomy chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair underneath of you. You can find your way to page 93, and those will make it easy for you to find where we're at. But Deuteronomy up to this point has been telling us the story of God taking His people, the Israelites, and taking them from being slaves in Egypt to wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, and now they've come to the point where they reached the promised land. God had promised that He would give them a place of their own, that He would make them a nation of their own. And so they reached the edge of the promised land, and up to this point in Deuteronomy, Moses has kind of been sharing with them, encouraging them, challenging them with a little bit of a history lesson. He's been telling them God has been faithful in all these ways up to this point. And now here we are getting ready to go into the land that God has promised to give us. Be faithful to Him again. But we're hitting a a different section in the book of Deuteronomy that this week, this first verse in our passage kind of turns the page on the history. And we go from studying the history of how God has been faithful to them to how God's people should act. What are the the specific laws, the specific ways that that God has called His people to act like His people? So Deuteronomy 12.1 kind of gives us a good launching point for that section. It says, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. We're going to start to wander into some very clear very specific laws that God has given His people. Because as God gives His people these laws, what He's doing, the the key idea of this entire section, which is Deuteronomy 12 through chapter 26, we're going to be in this section for a while. But the key to this entire section is to remember that God wants the Israelites, His people, to act like they belong to Him and not just to act like the Canaanites or the other people that were living in that land. They were supposed to be different. They were supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to be holy. And it's important for us, one other caution for us as we enter into this, and I think it'll be important for us to continue to remind ourselves of this as we go through these specific laws that God has given to His people in Deuteronomy. These laws are given to the Israelites who were a theocratic state. What that means is they were ruled by God. They didn't have an earthly king. They didn't have a constitution. They didn't have laws of the land like we have. They were ruled by God. God's Word was their constitution. God's Word was their law. So as God gave them these laws, many of these laws were given specifically to them, specifically for their time. They don't apply to us directly today. We can't say, oh, well, it says we should sacrifice in this way, so we're going to start sacrificing here on Sunday mornings at the Rock. But what these laws do communicate to us is they communicate a reflection of the mind of God. They communicate God's heart to us. And just like God was thousands of years ago with His people, we know that He's the exact same God today, that nothing about God has changed between then and now. The way that He interacts with us may look different, but it doesn't mean that God's different. And so as we study these laws, what we're going to do, we're not going to say, oh, well, that Let's just make a copy of that and put it into practice today. But what we can do 
is see what's important to God. We can see how God cares about his people being different than the world that they live in. We can see how God's people are supposed to act. We can see how God's people are supposed to think certain things are important and certain things are not important. And so as we study these specific laws, that's kind of the filter that we're going to be looking at all of these laws through. What do we see about God and how does that communicate to us in 2020? So we see a few different things in this section that we're going to kind of take it a chunk at a time. So the first thing that we see, the first principle that God gives to His people and that we can remember as well is that it's important to worship the right God. Verses 2 through 4 in Deuteronomy 12 show us that it's important that we worship the right God. So follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 2. It says, You shall utterly destroy all of the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars, burn their ashtarim with fire, and you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods, obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. As they were going into the promised land, they were coming into a land that was really, there were evil people that lived there. The Canaanites, the people who were living in the land that the Israelites were getting ready to go in and possess, they were a wicked people. They practiced idol worship. There were uh, sacred temples, and uh, these, these ashtarim were uh, symbols of their idol worship. So God's telling His people as they go into the promised land, He's telling them, I am the Lord. I am the only God, and you worship me. You don't worship these other people. You don't worship these other gods. He commanded that they would destroy these other gods, these other places of worship. So why is that important for us? We live in a a multi-religious society. Should we go out and start burning down the other religious centers around us and, and destroying the places around us? Well, no, because we don't live in a theocratic state where God is the king of our country. But we do live in a place where God is the king of our hearts. We do live in a place where we know the truth. And the truth that we find in this book is that there is one God, and that God is God, and He is the only God. And so as we look at these other religions that exist around us, as we work with people who who share other religious beliefs from us, It's important for us to remember that that there is one true God, and the rest are lies. The rest are absolutely not the same. There's a trend today that I, it's described as pluralism. Pluralism means there's a lot of different gods, there's a lot of different ways that, you may have even heard it described this way before, you know, we're all kind of trying to accomplish the same thing. All of the religions of the world are trying to, to find their way to God, and we're all doing the same thing. It's just like taking different paths up a mountain. It's just looking at it from a different perspective. We're all really kind of worshiping the same God, but, but I think these verses tell us very clearly God is not okay with some other religion just being close enough. God says, no, the other gods, the other people that they were worshiping in Canaan up to this point, they needed to be destroyed because they were not 
God. They were not the true religion. And so when idols appear around us, it's important for us to admit and to acknowledge and to realize and to boldly proclaim our God is the true God. Jesus said when he was on earth in John 14, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to God. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's not, that's not a story of, yeah, there's, there's lots of different ways. There's lots of different paths to the same God. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the one who came, who died on a cross, who paid a sacrifice that he didn't, he, he didn't deserve to pay that debt, but he paid it so that I wouldn't have to pay mine, so that I wouldn't have to die to pay the penalty that I deserve for my sin. He is the reason why God can look at us and show mercy and not punish us like we deserve. He is the reason why God shows us grace and, and, and he can call us adopted as sons. He can call us forgiven. He can call us enough. Jesus is that reason. So it's important for us to realize, to admit, to even publicly declare we worship the right God. We worship the only God. I think these verses make it clear that idea that God is okay with with any and all religions just kind of being close. It's very clearly not the truth. So it's important for us to worship the right God. It's also important for us to worship in the right place. Verses 5 through 14 talk about seeking out the place that the Lord your God will choose out. Let's look at verses 5 through 14 together. It says, But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes, to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There you shall there also you and your households shall eat before the Lord your God, and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. For you have not as of yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I have commanded you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, all your choice votive offerings which you vow to the Lord. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place that you see, but in the place that the Lord chooses in one of your tribes. For there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. I know there's been other times in the book of Deuteronomy where we've talked about this, where we've acknowledged this and we've seen this, and you're not crazy. As we read through that chunk, it does repeat itself. Repetition is a key tool that Moses uses in Deuteronomy. Repetition is really a, a key tool that any of us that's responsible for teaching someone something 
repetition is kind of a key element of teaching. Repetition is something that, you know, oftentimes at, at a job, we'll say, watch me do it, and then we'll say, watch me do it again, and then we'll say, you do it while I watch. And, you know, we, we kind of slowly learn how to do something by learning from someone who's done it before and watching someone who's done it before. Repetition for my children is another thing that's really kind of important for them. I can't tell you how many times I've told them the same rule over and over and over again, and sooner or later, they're going to get it. I'll let you guys know when they finally get it. (laughs) But repetition here is used. So what's the particular stress of this repetition where verses 8 through 14 really kind of repeat what was said in verses 4 through 7? The, The particular point of this is we don't worship how we think is best. We don't worship how we think is best. Moses says right now the people of Israel are kind of just going out and and doing whatever's right in their own eyes. Whatever they think is right, that's what they go and, and they, they live out, and they do. But he's also telling them that we live under the direction of a king, that there is one person who's in charge, one person who knows best, and that if we're going to worship God, it's important for us to worship Him His way. Worship was to be done God's way and in God's place. God is in control, and His way is always best. So as He was telling them, I'm going to choose out a specific place for you to come to make your sacrifices, to to bring your offerings, you're going to do worship my way. It's important for us to remember that same thing. I think it's very clear in these passages that there's kind of a reality that as they went into the promised land, as they went into Canaan and, and took this as their land, it would have been really easy for them to just convert the religious places that were already there, to just convert the temples to, you know, we'll, we'll take most of the, the old bad religious stuff out and we'll start to worship God in these places. And he said, God said here that he wanted those places destroyed, that, that God would choose out the place and the way, and the method that they were to worship. Tells us today that, that we don't get to just do whatever we want to and tell God, all right, I'm going to do, do this for you, but I'm going to go do what I want. We live in a way that God calls us to. We worship in the way that God ta- calls us to. While it may be easier to do other things, the reality is that God knows what's best. There's instances in Scripture where we see this several different times. I picked out just a few instances that we see very clearly. Sometimes there was an option that was maybe more convenient, an option that seemed better to the person in that moment, but ultimately they chose not to obey God, not to do things God's way, not to worship God's way, and it didn't work out well for them. So I'd like to share just a couple of those with you guys. In Exodus 32 and Deuteronomy chapter 9, we see the people thinking that they know what's best, but they got impatient and they did things their own way. They got impatient and they did things their own way when Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. We just studied this a few weeks ago as it shows up in Deuteronomy 9. Moses gets delayed up on the mountain speaking with God and getting those Ten Commandment tablets. And so while he's up on the mountain, the people of Israel get restless and they start to want something specific, something clear that they could worship. They weren't setting out to create their own religion. They were 
they were looking for a way to worship God, and they told Aaron to make a, a calf that they could look at, that they could see, that they could, could feel and touch. And they chose to worship that golden calf. And we know how that worked out for them. It didn't work out well. Michael and Pastor Dave shared recently about how God was angry, about how God wanted to crush the Israelites, about how God was done with them because they chose to worship in the way that they thought was best and not the way that God had told them to. If we flip forward into 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, we see Saul, the king, he was at war against the Philistines, and Samuel, the high priest, was delayed in coming. So King Saul decided to offer sacrifices himself. The high priest was supposed to be the one that offered the sacrifices, but, but Saul said, we need God's help, and so we're going to offer sacrifices. And even though Samuel's not here, I'll just do it. And him choosing to take things into his own hand ultimately resulted in God telling him, someone else will be the king of the nation of Israel because you went about doing things your way. You're not my king that's representing me. You're, you're doing things what you want, not what I want. He lost his throne because he chose to worship and to do things his way instead of the way that God commanded. A little bit later in that same book, in 1 Samuel 28, we see after Samuel, the high priest, had died, King Saul was out battling the Philistines again, and he consulted a medium in Endor. He went to a fortune teller, and he asked her to help him speak to Samuel, to try to get a word from God to, you know, hey, what do I need to do? And so he sought Samuel. He was seeking God, but he did it in a way that he had been told not to do it. Fortune tellers have no place in God's people and Saul went about finding the answers that he was looking for, but he did it in the wrong way. I think we struggle with the same realities sometimes. We're tempted with the same opportunities sometimes. Today, we don't go to war against the Philistines, but what we do is we do find ourselves trying to take things into our own hands. We get impatient with God and we decide to, to take things into our own hands to make things happen. We might turn to astrology, turn to tarot cards, turn to, to one of these methods that people look to to find answers. God's people don't need to turn to tarot cards and horoscopes to find answers for the future. We have the answers for the future. God tells us how we should look to the future. Christians today are also tempted to seek advice from a magazine, to seek advice from some self-help book that we might read to tell us how to live a better life, but we ignore the book that can actually help us. We ignore the book that we should be reading because if we read this book, it is sufficient to give us everything that we need for life and godliness. This book is enough. You don't need a self-help book. You don't need to watch some great Oprah motivational Phil, you know, Dr. Phil show that, that'll tell you how to solve all your problems in life. God is enough for that too. God is enough to help you through whatever problem you're going through. Sometimes we turn to friends. We, we talk to everybody else around us. We talk to family members. We talk to coworkers about, well, what should I do in this situation? but we hesitate and we don't go to God and ask God, what should I do 
in this situation. We're willing to talk to other people frequently, but do we talk to God about our problems? Do we talk to God asking Him for guidance? It's important for us to worship the right God. It's important for us to worship Him in the right place, the right way. It's also important for us to worship with the right offering. Verses 6 and 7, and then it repeats it again in verses 11 and 12. It talks about us as God's people bringing the right offerings to God, how they should bring their burnt offerings and their sacrifices. So let's look. We're going to read verses 6 and 7 again. It says, There you shall bring the burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contributions of your hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, the firstborn of your herd and your flock. There also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. There are several different kinds of offerings that are described here in this passage that the people of Israel are commanded, are called to offer to the Lord. It talks about burnt offerings and sacrifices. It talks about tithes, which was 10%, the best 10% of both their livestock and their produce that they would produce, their vegetables, their fruits, their grain. also talks about their contribution, which was gifts that were given specifically to the priests and to the people who worked in the temple, in the tabernacle. also talks about vow offerings, offerings that were given to fulfill a commitment that they had made to the Lord. They said, God, I'll give you X. And so their vow offerings were given to fulfill a commitment then finally, it mentions free will offerings. Anything that God would put in their heart to give above and beyond anything else that they were giving, offerings that were given voluntarily were their free will offerings. Some of these offerings were made specifically to seek forgiveness from God. They were offering sacrifices to pay the debt for their sin that they had accumulated. But some of these others were expressions of gratitude to God. They were expressions and realizations that, that God deserves our best. And they wanted to give back to God because God had been so good to them. So while we look at all of these different offerings, I would love to stand up here and to tell you that we're going to institute burnt offerings here. And so you need to bring a cow. Dick and the team in the kitchen would love to, to you know, take care of all of that for us. And we're going to have steak today because someone brought their offering in. We're not going to institute burnt offerings. We're not going to institute a grilling plan at the rock. But what we see here, as God tells us to make offerings and to make several different offerings, is that giving is an important part of being part of God's family. Giving is an important part of worship. Giving is one of the happiest things about Christianity because giving helps us realize that life is not all about the things that we can accumulate, the things that we can collect and invest in ourselves. Giving is about divesting ourselves of the earthly possessions that so easily kind of distract us. I'm tempted by shiny things. I like the new toy. I like the new phone when it comes out. I like the new technology. It's something that interests me. But that doesn't mean that that's what our life should be about. Life is not all about having new shoes and new clothes and a new car and, and how much can we collect for ourselves. Life is about how much we can point people to the King who deserves our attention, deserves our affection. 
And giving helps put life back in its proper perspective. There is great joy in giving up stuff to help point people to the real important things in life. To help someone else, to give of ourselves for someone, someone else. To give to the needy, to give to God's work somewhere in the world. Giving is an important part of life for God's people, and it's not because God needs your money. It's not because God needs my money. It's because God wants our heart. And Jesus taught us very clearly in the book of Matthew this reality. Where a man's heart is, that's where his treasure will be also. We give not because God needs our money to turn the lights on, to run the air conditioners, to to give us opportunities to go and to do things. We give because God knows a greedy person, a person who, 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 who collects and hoards for themselves, is just focused on themselves. And when we give to things, our heart goes with it. God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. He wants my heart. That's why we give. We give because we acknowledge and we see the giving back to God, giving things to God in His way, like these offerings that it talks about here in the book of Deuteronomy, are an important part of us admitting and acknowledging regularly, God is my King. God is enough. God will provide for all of my needs. And I'm going to trust Him and be thankful for what He's given me and give some of it back. In the Old Testament system, they brought tithes of their livestock, tithes of their contribution. They had very specific and very clear expectations of you bring 10% of this, you bring 5% of that, you bring this offering, you bring this animal. You bring... We don't function in that way anymore. What we do know is we see a story of a widow in Luke 21 who came and gave the little bit that she had, but she gave it with joy. She gave it in a way that she gave. It was sacrificial. It was all that she could give. But she gave it to the temple and she gave it with joy in her heart. And Paul talks about that same reality in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 when he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We're not here as a church, we're in the, the New Testament age, after Jesus came and, and changed these Old Testament laws, we no longer have expectations and requirements and, and how many animals and what kind of animal and what type of sacrifice you're to give. But God tells us that we should give joyfully, that we should give cheerfully, that we should give as God puts it on our heart to give, and that we should give in a way that our heart is stirred towards, man, I love you, God, I love you so much but I want you to have this. We give here because we want to give God our heart. It's important for us to worship the right God. It's important for us to worship in the right way. It's important for us to worship with the right offerings. Now we see a little bit of a turn, a little bit of a transition. Our passage goes from giving the people of Israel, all of these new restrictions, all of these new expectations to giving them new freedom to eat meat. Verses 15 through 28 talk about giving them new freedom 
to eat meat. It's not about giving restrictions. It's about removing restrictions because of some practical considerations. So let's look at verses 15 through 28 together. However, it says, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gates, whatever you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. You are not allowed to eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or new wine or oil or the firstborn of your herd or flock or any of your votive offerings which you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution of your hand. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God will choose, you, your son and daughter, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. It says, be careful to do, that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God extends your border as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you desire to eat meat, then you may eat meat, whatever you desire. If the place which the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter of your herd and flock which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your gates whatever you desire. Just as the gazelle or a deer is eaten, so you will eat it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure not to eat the blood, for the, life, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh." You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. You shall not eat it so that it may be well with you and with your sons after you. For you will be doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Only your holy things which you may have and your votive offerings you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses. You shall offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. And the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall eat the flesh. Be careful to listen to all these words which I command you, so that it may go well with you and your sons after you forever. For you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. So again, we see repetition here. We see repetition in our passage because we read verses 15 through 19, and then we seem to see something very similar in verses 20 through 28. So what's the point? What is Moses trying to communicate? I think there's a little bit of backstory here that it's important for us to understand, so I'm going to share a little bit with you guys. According to the regulations described in Leviticus 17, a few pages back, meat from all kinds of animals that were used for sacrifices, like sheep and cattle, could only be eaten during meals in connection with the sacrifice ritual. Only those who were ceremonially clean could eat this meat. When we brought a a, a cow to be slaughtered, people who were prepared to worship, the people who were clean and had had gone through the process of of making themselves right before God were invited to come and eat of it. You remember the way that the Israelites were traveling around through the wilderness that God was leading His people. They were in one big horde of people, and God, His presence, and the tabernacle dwelled right in the middle of that. They weren't too far from where the sacrifices were being made to come and to bring their sacrifice. It says, Meanwhile, hunted animals like deer and gazelle could be consumed by anybody at any time by the ceremonially clean and unclean people. This was because during wilderness travel, there weren't many cattle, there weren't many sheep, and it was also because everyone 
was near to the tabernacle where the sacrifices would be offered. But when they went into the promised land, God was going to designate a specific place for His temple to be built. He was going to designate a specific place. And, and if you lived on the other end of the promised land, it wasn't practical for them to come and to journey and to make their sacrifices regularly at the place that God had designated, to, to come and to eat when someone was offering their burnt offering. So he tells them that practically, we're not going to require you to come to the temple, come to the tabernacle to eat your meat anymore. There's also plenty. There's going to be plenty of land. Your, your, your herds are going to grow. Your flocks are going to grow. There's going to be plenty of meat. We don't need to worry about how there's a limited number anymore. When they were journeying through the wilderness, there wasn't an abundance of animals. Those animals that were being offered as sacrifices were scarce. It was reasonable for them to, to save those animals for the sacrifices. But as they come into the promised land, there was going to be plenty. It's going to be enough. God was going to bless them, and God was going to give them all that they could desire. So we see in Deuteronomy 12.15, it says, However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gates, whatever you desire, according to the blessing that the Lord your God has given you. There was a reason why those restrictions were put in place. And now that they were entering into the promised land, there was a reason that those restrictions could be removed. God hadn't just set out to take away some freedom, to tell them that they couldn't eat meat at their house, they couldn't slaughter and eat steak just because they wanted to. It wasn't because his desire was just to take away something fun from them. He wasn't just trying to take away something joyful that they wanted to consume, and, and he just thought it would be fun to tell them no. There was a reason for it. And when that reason was removed, the restriction was removed. I think this chapter really clearly shows us that the Old Testament laws are not just some dreary list of do's and don'ts but as a way to lead the people to a full enjoyment of life with God and with each other. Desire is not something to deny. It is something to surrender to God so that He will redeem it and help us enjoy fulfilling it in His way. God doesn't just take things from us because He's a big old meanie pants. He restricts things because He knows that they're not what's best for us. When something is a good gift that's good for His people to consume, when it's good for His people to live in a certain way, He, he removes those restrictions. Let's talk real practically about what that means for us. It means real practically for us, God is a good Father. God is a good King and God is a, a loving God. The Bible tells us that He gives good gifts to His children. It tells us that, that He's enough. So when we read the Bible and we read things that say, don't do this, don't do that, live this way, when we see those principles, it's not because God doesn't want you to have fun. It's not because God wants to take something from you that would bring enjoyment into your life. It's because God ultimately knows what's best. He knows that, men, that loving your wife and only your wife 
It's the way that it works best. He knows that leading our families, that leading our children, that loving our children in the way that the Bible talks about, that that's what's best. That ultimately it, it results in a joyful life, a joyful family, a gift that will continue to give to us day after day, year after year, instead of just something that might be a, a fleeting moment of happiness and then it's gone. Tells us that we shouldn't become addicted to things that, that ultimately will bring us harm. A lot of different things that God tells us in His Word that He tells us, live this way. And it's not because He wants to take something from us. Because we see here that when the reason for, for restricting their consumption of meat was gone... God removed the restriction. Tells me very clearly that when God puts restrictions on us, it's not just because that's the way we do it. I don't know. It's because He knows that that's what's best for us. The last verse of our passage really clearly communicates this to us. Verse 28, it says, Be careful to listen to all these words which I command you, so that it may go well with you and with your sons after you forever. For you will be doing what is right, good and right, in the sight of the Lord your God. Obeying God will result in things going well with us. It'll result in things, in us living the best life, in us receiving the best gifts, in us having the most joy. God's desire is is for us to experience fullness of life in Him. Jesus said that He came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. That we would live life not just okay, but that we would have the fullness of life. When we live life His way, when we do things His way, it's not because He wants to take something from us, it's because He wants to give something to us. And as a good father, if we trust that he is the good father that the Bible describes him as, if we have the faith to say, God, your way is best, it will always be best. Things may not always work out perfectly in every instance and give you exactly what you want, but I promise you, there's times where I can look back, and I'm sure there's times where you can look back. Church, something didn't work out the way that you wanted it to in the moment, but you can look back 10 years later and say, oh, now I see what God was doing. Now I see how that was really for my good or for my family's good. The reason why I'm here, there's, there's stories that if I had time, I'd love to share with you. Terrible things that happened that, that brought us to the point where we are today that God can use us in great ways. That God brought us to the rock. but I don't look back on those and say, God, why did you let that happen? I look back on those things and I say, God, thank you for letting those things happen because I can trust and I can know that God's plan, God sees the whole plan, God sees the whole story, and that he knows that it's best. Would you trust him and trust that his way is best? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for... God, we thank you for these laws that you gave to your people. We thank you that we can see that time after time, story after story, law after law, that your plan was best for your people. And God, we pray that as your people today, 
that we would live in a way that we trust that your way is best. God, we offer our lives to you. God, we offer everything that we do before you. And God, we pray that, God, that we would live in your way. That we would live and walk the path that you have called us to walk because your way is best. We offer ourselves to you. We pray that you would work in us, that you would use us, that you would clean us up for your work. We love you. Amen.